Welcome to Excelsior Journeys. If I don't sound like your host, George Soroy, it's because I'm turning the tables on him this week and interviewing him as part of the season five finale and the 30th anniversary of the character George created. JLD, do the honors. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for you? And that's you, why I moment? taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid, drawing stills Line of Ariel. I've got better things to do tonight than so die. So jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater with him saying, I'm going to write Halloween I'm rather sense. impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the car. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just do it. You know, throw yeah. some spaghetti yeah. against the wall. See this if it is sticks. George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. This is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for tuning in for over 175 episodes. And this week, we are celebrating the season five finale of Excelsior Journeys. Before I turn the reins over to my longtime friend, story editor, and mentor, Jerry Ann Geller, a little bit of house cleaning real quickly. First of all, if you are hearing this right now between December 27th and December 30th, then there is still time to join myself and horror host Ivana Cadaver for our postponed Festivus airing of gratitude. We were going to do it on the 23rd, but Ivana came down with a little case of quote unquote rigor mortis. And so we have pushed it back for one week. So it's going to be on Friday, December 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. It is a live streaming event. So we will see you on Facebook and Twitter. All the details are on this podcast notes. And also the upcoming audio drama for Excelsior has a cast. You will get to know them in February. That whole month is going to be dedicated to the production of that audio drama. So you're going to be hearing from cast and crew. You're going to hear from the music composers. It is going to be a blast and a huge dream come true for me. Also in February, we're also going to be experiencing the official launch of the Once Upon a Podcast Network. So join Excelsior Journeys and nine other shows that are all creative-centric, that are all about inspiring, motivating, celebrating, and even rejuvenating for creatives everywhere. This has been just a truly wonderful five years, and I am thrilled to say that uh, that at the end of here at the end of 2022, we are also coming to an end on the 30th anniversary year of the character that I created back in 1992, Excelsior. He has gone on to inspire three young adult science fiction novels, the upcoming audio drama, and this podcast. And it's a very safe bet that 99% of you have never heard of him. So with that in mind, it is my thrill to pass the desk over to, as I said, my longtime friend, story editor, writer, and mentor, Jerry Ann Geller. Jerry Ann, how are you? I am great. How are you doing today, George? I am I am doing really, really well. It's been it's been a very very eventful year, to say the least. And I can't think of a of a better way to celebrate than kind of looking back on on all of this craziness of 30 years with you. You, You're more, you're more well-versed in Excelsior lore than uh, anyone else except for myself. And 
It's been just just a thrill getting to share all these stories with you and then figuring out exactly what needed to be given detail in order to really make make those details fly. Yeah, totally. So you ready to have the tables turned? I am. I am. Instead of being in the interviewer chair? I am all set. I'm very comfortable on this side. Oh yeah. Buckle your seatbelt because we're about to go back in time. We're, this is going to be a little, uh, once upon a time, a little time travel. So I think we should start by telling the people how we met once upon a time in the land called Hadassah. There was a little writer's group called 111 on 7. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. I was the head of editorial services at Hadassah and I believe you were a production assistant. Yeah, I was the, I was the assistant of traffic and production right. that was well, in the communications so, department. So we, right, we were in the communications and marketing department. It started out communications mm-hmm. and marketing and marketing became marketing. And our wonderful art director, Carol Weiner, shout out to Carol Weiner, said, shout you know, you really should get to know this new kid, George, because he's a writer. I understand he has a play at the time you were doing the Halloween play in the park, right? Yep. Yeah, Halloween at Belvedere. That was that was a and lot of so fun to do. When I decided, so I've done, I've facilitated writers' workshops many, many, many times over the years because I teach, I've teach taught writing on and off and so forth. And so I invited you to join and it, our little group. Let's see, Liz Kimberlin, Jamie Allen Black, mm-hmm. the much loved and late Herman Costa, and ourselves. And George was telling me, well, there's this character that's been banging around in my head for years and I want to get him on paper. And throughout the existence of 111 on 7, we kept trying to get George to actually start writing. And we spent a lot of lunches talking about the characters, I remember, but somehow Mm -hmm. he didn't get onto paper. And then fast forward a couple of years and Hadassah laid off basically like three quarters of its paid staff. And George gave me a call one day and he said, I've written it. What had happened to get you to actually put Excelsior on paper, George? Really, it just kind of goes back to an impromptu shopping trip that my wife, Cheryl, and I took in December of 2007. We took a trip from Queens over to over to Lincoln Square, where they have a great Barnes & Noble. And I remember going downstairs to the references slash writing section, and I came across this little little book. It's very much like the, like the Cup of a Carpenter that Indiana Jones finds in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Amongst all these other books, all these other flashier books, and there's this tiny little book that a gentleman named Chris Beatty wrote called No Plot, No Problem. And it was my introduction to National Novel Writing Month. And I had never heard of this before at that time. I picked it up and I just started looking through it and there was something about it. Maybe it was just the size of it or something. Maybe it was just so unassuming, but it was just like, you want to take me home. You want to take me home. And so I went ahead and did. And I remember, I remember I started reading it and I couldn't stop because the first section is all about the history of National Novel Writing Month and what it's all about, what the, rec- what the requirements are and how by the end of one month, you will have a 50,000 word draft of a novel. And I 
strongly say draft because there are way too many people out there that have taken the liberty to, as soon as December 1st comes around, hit publish on Amazon. That's not that's not what you should be doing. I've spoken about National Novel Writing Month several times in the past, and so I will just reiterate that. Don't do that. This is all about writing a draft of a novel. And I got really excited about it, and I was just going through it, and I was really into it, and I real, realized that this was a challenge that I could do. And I knew that if I did it, it would not be in November because November is – my wife's birthday, our anniversary, and Thanksgiving. And in 2008, it was going to be our first anniversary. So there was no way that I was going to say, by the way, I'm going to write a book on top of all of this that we have going on. So I did some additional research, and I found out that there was a challenge that took place in June that was the exact same thing. National Novel Writing Month only in June, and it was called at the time the Southern Cross Novel Challenge. It was based out of New Zealand. And so I decided June was going to be when I was going to do it. So I remember turning the page at the end of that section on No Plot, No Problem, and I read Chris saying, okay, here we go, day one. And that's when I closed the book because it was still, it was going to be six months away. I was not ready yet. And I knew I was going to use this as my guide. And if I started reading with day one, then I was going to want to jump the gun and I was going to be impatient and the whole thing just wouldn't have worked. So I decided June, 2008 would be when all of this would take place and best decision I could have made because without that foundation, because that's basically what I did. If you look at writing as a house, I poured the foundation. That was all I did. But when I was doing that, I was so convinced that All I needed to do was just touch it up a little bit here and there, and then I could start reaching out to agents because I knew that this thing had universal appeal. And as I was, as I finished writing it, it wasn't, it was only a few months after I'd finished writing it. That's when I reached out to you. Something told me I needed another, I needed another pair of eyes on this. And who better, who better to trust with this than someone that, I've already talked their ear off about this character and has been encouraging me to write about this character. So why not let her say, Hey, I I wrote about this character. Can you take a look at it? And I was so pumped. I was just ready. I had my head way, way, way up my own ass about this, thinking that this was going to be, this is going to be everything that I ever wanted it to be. And the first thing you said after reading just chapter one was this is going to take a lot of work very much in the same fashion that Don Diego de la Vega says to Alejandro Marietta in the mask of Zorro this is going to take a lot of work. (laughs) So we worked for almost two years and a lot of twists and turns happened during those two years. And we brought in some other people to help out. My wife, Cheryl, did a great read of the whole story and was able to, she came in like really late in the process, but the ideas that she had. We also have to say how endlessly patient she was with us. Oh, patience of a saint, really. Must have fed me like a half dozen times while we like 
for hours worked on this. So oh, yeah. big shout to Cheryl. Lots, much love to Cheryl, who, as I like to say, is my choice for person to be on a deserted island with. Cause I know not only would we survive, we probably would build a village, a movie theater, a hospital and a school. Oh, we would, oh, we would thrive. Like, I mean, she's, she's right out of the Victoria Jackson, Paul Simon sketch on SNL where they're stranded on a deserted island on Christmas and she makes Paul Simon watch. We were watching that recently and just, and she's like, that's me. I was just like, I know that's you. (laughs) (laughs) It's totally her. Yeah. Yeah, she she just she blows my mind every day. Was totally patient, and all of those people who support creatives out there, thank you, thank you, thank you. You may not write the words or paint the picture or choreograph the dance, but you are still every bit a part of what that person creates. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That's just like what Stephen King said when he sees. When he sees people that dedicate their first book to their to their spouses, he knows that they get it. They sometimes just being there is enough. And she was there and continues to be there and just above and beyond every day. Dealing with dealing with my dealing with my BS. Yeah. (laughs) And then there's another unsung hero who does what might be the most important and uncelebrated job in publishing. And that oh, yeah. was your first proofreader, our dear friend, Susan Yacker. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Susan and I also go way back over to the Hadassah days, just like the two of you, two of you did. And she, yeah, she is, she's fabulous. And the, the work that she did as a proofreader was also great. And, very, very well, much needed, especially like when it came to like around the end when I couldn't bear to look at these words over and over again, the way that we have, it was just like, it just felt like my eyes were just glazing over the whole time. Right. And, just- and, and that's a great point for, for beginning writers. You, you get kind of a visual fatigue from looking at the words over and over again. And, and even people like me who've made a living as an as an editor, I'm a higher level editor, which means I do story development and line editing and things of that nature. But getting down to the, the, the fine points of grammar and punctuation takes an eagle eye. And boy, oh boy, Susan is the eaglest of eyes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a huge, huge help. And once everything was finished, that's when I decided that I was going to stick with self-publishing because I knew that if, if this story were to come out through an established publisher through one of the big five at that time, I think maybe big six at that time, I'm not, I'm not even sure I lost count, but I knew that if it had come out through them and it didn't do well, then I would have lost my shot to be able to tell this whole universe. And so I decided to go the self-publishing route. And what I did this time around was, I put together what I called the early bird special and I reached out to friends, family members, people I knew on social media, et cetera. And I basically gave them a deal for 1795. If you take advantage of getting your copy now, then you've not only guaranteed your copy that will be signed and everything and, ha- and handed to you or mailed to you, but you will also have your name listed in the acknowledgement section in the back of the book. And as my people who helped make this happen. And 
I wound up getting bringing in enough money to cover all of the setup charges, all of the sh- all of the printing charges, and all the shipping charges. And so they always say that they always said back in the day when it came to self publishing that that you were that it, this was going to be a last ditch effort to get your work out, and you would come off as very unprofessional to do the self publishing route. So don't do it. And again, this is years before the complete idiot's guide to self-publishing was was released because the complete idiot's guide to publishing science fiction in 2001 had only one paragraph about self-publishing and it was don't do it so it's amazing how times change but the great thing was was that with this route by going the route that i did i didn't pay to get my work out there my readers did and that's what really makes the difference right but i also want to just underline for one more second that Taking the time to get a, if you're going to put your money into it, you want to put your money into your cover and your editing. Because one of the first reviews that George got was how polished and professional the story was. that it, it that it was actually well edited, unlike a lot of self published books where there's just mistakes galore. Mm -hmm. And and I think. If I might be so bold, I think one of the reasons that all of the publishers that took a chance with George after that initial foray was because the book was so professionally done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm also grateful to you because that became basically a second or even third career of being a novel editor at which I greatly enjoy and have done many, many books since then. But it was, I I think working with you inspired me to try to help creatives tell their story. And Mm -hmm. we kind of learned together in a lot of ways. Oh yeah. And I had a major advantage in that we had all those lunches where you were so excited and had so many ideas and I couldn't understand why they weren't getting onto paper. So when it was finally on paper, I thought, okay, exactly. He's poured the foundation. Now let's build the house. And unfortunately, you had not yet... I realized that George of today is at a completely different place than George of back then. But... Young George didn't quite realize what was what it took to build the house yet. Yeah, yeah, so, I, I had I had I had the lot, like I had the lot basically prime. Well, you you had the, bought like, the lot. I had bought time, the lot. You, you bought the lot. I had bought in, the lot. Like, right, but there were weeds growing all over the place, and it was <laughs> it was it was a mess. It it, it just hadn't been. Yeah, kept. yeah, yeah. It had it had uh, not yeah. been kept at all. And I was too busy right. thinking like, well, the drape should go over here. So, <laughs> well, okay. So we're going to pause. We're going to put a pin in this. And we're going to take a little pause back in time again, because mm-hmm. there's two things that you need to know in order to understand everything that comes after one, which we'll talk about in a second is how George started to dream up this character. But before that, I wanted to mention one of the most profound experiences in your life and one of your dearest loved ones, which was your cousin, mm-hmm. Matt. So when we were yeah. at Hadassah, I was there for, and I'm, I'm, and I'm tr- going to try not to get a little verklempt about this, how you shared with us all of the incredible things that your cousin accomplished. Could you tell us a little bit about him? 
Yes, Matthew Peter Henkel, my cousin, my first cousin. Yeah, he he had uh, he had passed away in March of 2005, one week before his 25th birthday, and it was also maybe a month, no, about two months after he got engaged, and it was it was literally like the last thing that he really needed that we as a family could not provide because he was always someone who had an idea and then just went ahead and went forward with it. And if it worked great, and if not, we'll try something else, but he was a little bit of a real life superhero. Oh, very much. So when he was two years old, he was diagnosed with Wilms tumor, which is a cancer of the kidneys that affects children. And he had been like a real champion for organ donation and ever since then. And so because of the chemo stunting his growth, Matt never really got higher than about five feet. And so he really just kind of just went after every single thing that he wanted. He started off as an old boy. He went ahead and became an Eagle Scout, which was, I understand, like about maybe 2% of those in Boy Scouts ever reach. I know I didn't reach it. He went on to be a volunteer firefighter. He was inspired by our grandfather who who just passed away last year. He then went on to be an EMT and he helped deliver a baby. He, he was saying how proud he was about being able to do that. And he was also on the, Jer- on the Jersey side, helping to keep the peace during 9-11. So he's gone through a lot. And then he wound up getting engaged. Like he, after everything that he went through, he wound up finding the love of his life. And it was just like everything he ever wanted to do, he was able to compact it into less than 25 years. And I was saying that I said later on that he, he didn't live a shortened life. He lived an abridged life. He lived life with all the boring parts taken out. And I wish that I had come up with that a week earlier, because when I talked about him, when I was writing for the pop culture website, 411 Mania, I got to share a little bit about him there. And however, a week before was when I was was asked to say a few words at his wake. And I feel like I did an, a well enough job there but I wish I had come up with the line and abridged life then instead of one week later. But that's that's the life of a writer, really. I mean, you're talking to someone who right. when when this when this book was finally done, it would it would get another draft in ebook form only in 2012 and then another one in 2013 and then another one in 2017. And now it's in, in the process of finding a new home where it might very well get another draft done. So that's just the way it is with this character. He's always in flux. And that's that's the way I feel about pretty much everything related to him. So how did you decide to marry the the awesomeness that was the real Matthew Peter Henkel with the character that you created, was it middle school or or high school? A lot of it was, was my own experiences. When I was a kid, I had a closet. I, I made my, my bedroom closet into my little office. I would put like a desk in there and, and some paper and I would just write in there more draw than anything, because at that, that point I was still 
convinced that that these characters, not Excelsior yet, Excelsior would come later, but I had this other universe of characters that I created in grade school with my friends. And I just kept on picking at those because I knew there was something there, but I didn't know what they were. So I just really kind of used up my time as much as I could just kind of working on these characters, adding to them because their designs were really, really basic. They were boxes, basically. They were just like boxy looking robots, but somehow I was able to make that work for the most part. And it worked for me. And that's really what, what mattered because I wasn't selling this or anything at that point. I wasn't getting it out there the way that I, the way that I would later on, but so when, I knew there was something so there and I just wanted to keep on working on it. When, the, the character that would become Excelsior. Well, it's one of those serendipitous things. I was not a very good student in high school and had a really good year my junior year, but freshman year, sophomore year, and even senior senior year was shaky, but my freshman and sophomore years just plain sucked. I, my grades were not good. My self-confidence was in the toilet. I was I was basically this was on like year four of six years living in Richmond, Virginia. And I just felt like I had not found myself at all. Now I had, like I was able to kind of take those characters that I had created back in grade school and I was able to pick at them and add some more detail to the point where I couldn't even draw them anymore. So I started just writing about them and that wound up getting people's attention because now all of a sudden they were interested in knowing what this little universe was all about. And so in order to get their attention even more, I started incorporating my classmates into those stories as like little supporters. So they were the girlfriend of this character or the wife of this character, or this character is being talked about on the radio, whatever. And that wound up getting attention. And so I had things really kind of back in gear in the summer of 92. And that was when I had to go to summer school for English of all things. My English teacher at the time, she and I did not, we didn't vibe well. It's not like we were at each other's throats or anything like that. Like I was a quiet kid, but at the same time, I just, I wasn't motivated. I didn't feel right. I didn't feel like what I was doing was good. I didn't like it. I didn't like myself, like everything. It just wasn't good there. But when I, when I went into summer school, my teacher there was awesome. And she and I got along really, really well to the point where I wound up getting an A in the class and was competing with my friends to see like who would get the better grade. So it, it, it got the juices flowing again. And it was right at that point. That's when we started talking about King Arthur. And it was my first viewing of the 1981 John Borman film Excalibur. Had never seen it before, and thankfully, we watched the PG version. And while I was watching it, I was so inspired. Like, it just felt like there was something in me that had just, like, kind of woken up. And that part of me, that it was already kind of working on creating characters, it was really starting to starting to move now. Now, all of a sudden, it was just like, ooh, I need to create someone who is going to be the center of this universe. This is, this is going to be the character that's really kind of going to start things up and they're going to be a God in human form and they're going to have flaws and they're going to have a sword. They got to have a sword and he's going to be from another planet. He's going to come to earth. All of this stuff. It was 
just like one one idea after another was just coming in. And I started just kind of sketching out this helmet, like a gladiator type helmet and with the points on on the on the top. And like at first glance, you would say like, why are you drawing Batman? It wasn't Batman. It was just, it was a gladiatorial type helmet. And as I'm doing it, I'm like, what am I going to call this guy? And the word Excelsior literally came to mind and just popped right into my head. And that made me think of the starship in Star Trek's three, four, and six. And it made me think of the word on the, New York state flag. And then it made me think of Stan Lee ending all of his rants with Excelsior. And it was just felt like, like this is, this is going, that's it. That's his name. And I just kept that. And then I, and then the, the really fun part was when I incorporated him into this established universe. And so he wasn't, he wasn't going to be like coming first that would inspire everything. He originally, he came into a universe that was already existing. And so he partnered up with one of my main characters and the two of them had almost like a buddy cop kind of vibe to them. And I just kept on like seeing, like seeing what worked, what didn't. When did the idea of naming your hero for your cousin occur? And how did that develop the character? That came later. That came actually like around the time of early 2008, when I decided I was going to write the novel, I had this other character name in mind. And originally he was going to be, he was going to be an adult. It was going to be, all the characters were going to be adults and he was going to be a long established cartoonist who, who has just gotten his big break and is about to get Excelsior launched as a film. And it's that word, that sort of the, that news that comes out, that's what attracts the attention of the person who is going to visit him and tell him, no, 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 this didn't come from you. This actually happens. And by the way, you're next in line to be him. And so originally it was going to be an adult and I had like just some placeholder names and I didn't real, I wasn't married to any of them. It just didn't feel right. And it was at that same time that's when I was really looking at what I could do with Excelsior as a novel. And then I really started thinking like, well, I think young adult is probably the, the way to go for this. He's got to be a younger character. Just something about it. Just it, it feels like it's it's the right thing to do to have him younger and have him in a point where he's really starting to all of a sudden get noticed and that's when he's visited and that's when it's revealed that what his destiny really is instead of what he thinks it would be. And that part of it was just like, well, Matt always, Matt, Matt wanted to live forever. <laughs> you know, he always wanted to, he always felt like nothing was going to stop him. And he had a bravery that I wish that I could have. And so I had considered him. In the past, I had considered him my hero. And I said that when I, I spoke about him at his wake. And around that time, that's when all of a sudden it just felt like it just felt like everything just kind of fell into place. It was, what am I going to call this guy? What am I going to call this young man? What am I going to name this hero? Well, who's my hero? Matt's my hero. And that became 
instead of just calling him Matthew Hankel, I was like, Matthew Peters. That sounds good. That sounds real good. That's it. That's it. And that was when I was just like, that's, that's the name. And I remember calling my mother and telling her, it's like, this is going to be his name. And she was like, oh, I love it. And so it just felt like, here we go. This is what, this is what, what it's, what he's going to be. And then I started adding in more elements of myself, things that I was dealing with, things like my own self-doubt about who I am and, and whether or not I'm worthy to take this journey. And then all of a sudden it just, it just felt like it steamrolled from there. Just felt like this is where he is at this point in time. This is who he is. And let's go, let's go from here. So in character when, and I think the the addition of the inspiration of your cousin gave him a kind of richness that maybe he didn't have before. Yeah, um, absolutely. And- it, it felt it felt more like like this is it felt more real, more three dimensional before. Yeah. So, and that was kind of as we began to work on the foundation that you laid in NaNoWriMo. Well, not really NaNoWriMo because it was the Southern Cross, but oh, yeah. anyway, yeah. the same idea. A lot of richness was added because we're yes. both fans of stories that, that are on the surface seem to be for children, but have lots of depth and richness that even adults can enjoy. Oh, yeah. And so... The first thing, of course, is that we had to make sure it had the major components of a good story. It had character. It had plot. It had conflict. Each of the individual characters had conflict. There was a story conflict. There was that push and pull. So all of those elements were there. Then it came time to give it that depth. And we started talking about characters. So George had his main character, which, of course, was Matthew Peters. Excelsior. And there mm-hmm. was his yep. uncle, Jason, who, so what George did is he yeah. split apart this original idea he just told you about into two characters. So there was Matthew and then his, who was a teenager. And then his uncle, Jason, who was his guardian with a very important backstory that affects the whole arc. Mm-hmm. And then there were, so, so they were the humans and then there were the citizens of a planet that he created dnab for yes there were the yep. human appearing aryans and yep. the not so human appearing cronations yes and above all of that were these mm, godlings maybe we can call them they were mm-hmm. that were basically playing dice with with a planet that they created. And so George had this huge tapestry of characters and then he had to start layering on the heroes and the villains aside from the the central character. George, who was the first character you started to develop outside of Matthew and Jason? Really the, I would say the first one that really, started to become something and this is me just kind of tapping into my old stories because that was really where like so much of the 
so much of the material was, was in those old stories. Because during the next couple of years of working on Excelsior as in high school, I barely drew him at all. I just, it was, it just like, I just added, like just started writing and writing and writing. And that's when there were so, so many elements that survive to this day through from those stories, from those stories that were what? filling my steno notebooks when it should have been homework assignments. So what characters are still in the trilogy that you created back then? Well, there was Danak, who is, uh, who is a Crenation leader who followed Excelsior to Earth, who came at, who came to Earth at the same time that Excelsior did. And his body is discovered. In, oh, wait, 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 wait. I don't want to give away. Wait, wait, wait. I don't, I, I'm sorry to stop you, but I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to give away for people who are going to be really excited to go and get a copy of Excelsior for themselves to read. I don't want mm-hmm. to give too much away, but maybe we should back up just a little bit and sketch this that George created. Basically, mm-hmm. there was, in the beginning, there was. Yes. In the beginning, there was, there was Excelsior. There was. Well, Tornatrax, um, right? Excelsior and Tornatrax. Well, well, really? Yeah. Like, I mean, in the, in the origin story, the, or, right. the well, actual the, the, like, origin the story of the character. Yeah. Yeah. In the, the basic origin story. And this is something that, that I created in like the second really big story for Excelsior back in high school. And I do have to say that I was inspired by, by the writings of a previous guest here, a gentleman named Flint Dilly, who was a writer for Transformers and went on to write the, was not only the story consultant on the 86 movie, but also would write the five part miniseries called Five Faces of Darkness, which started up the third season. There is a moment in part four of that where Rodimus Prime, the new leader of the Autos, enters the matrix of leadership and learns all about the Quintessons, who are the, the chief enemy throughout the rest of, of season three. And, and he basically sees the, the birth of Cybertron and what would eventually become the Cybertronian Wars. And it was fascinating, an amazing history lesson. And when I was in high school... I remembered that and wanted to really kind of tap into that sort of feeling of Excelsior basically being made aware of his own origins at the same time that we would, we, we, the reader would. And so I basically said that Excelsior's origins go all the way back to the beginning of the universe when legions of gods were sent out from the center of the universe to basically build it from, from the inside out and Excelsior's task as one of the gods was to create basically the jewel of the universe. The one, the one universe, the one part of the universe that everyone would look at for inspiration and would want to most emulate. And he created this star system that would basically be known in his mind as Eden and the fourth planet, which was the, the fourth planet from the sun was going to be the ideal planet to house the most amount of life. And so he kept on tinkering with this planet over and over and over again and trying to make it perfect and kept on working at it. Meanwhile, all the other gods are finishing their duties and rejoining the center of the universe. And here's Excelsior just tinkering and tinkering and tinkering. And it got to a point where he got to know these people and they got to know him and love him. And he wound up being overcome with pride. And 
having with a God that has pride, he felt that was that could not happen because his in his mind, God and man were to walk together toward their own toward their their specific destiny. And so he suppressed that pride so much and it was so strong that no matter how much he tried to suppress it, it eventually broke off away from him and created its own entity, which would come to know itself as Tornatrax. And Tornatrax is someone who is pure pride, pure ego, pure id, who believes that everyone below him is to worship him, is to defer only to him. And so he himself could not create life, but he could corrupt it. He can change it. And so that's what he did with all of the creatures of the sea and creating a whole species from them, humanoid species, but also amphibious. And he created what would eventually be known as a crenation empire. And those two species would, would clash. And because both of them have extremely different viewpoints on what it is that Excelsior and Tornatrax were there to do. And so it was at this point where, where God had basically just said to both Excelsior and Tornatrax, you two need to go down to this planet and figure this out. So you two need to go down and fight each other. Whoever is left standing, whoever is the victorious one, their influence would be what is permeating through that whole planet. The loser would be cast into oblivion. And so they were both basically sent down their life essences turned into swords on opposite ends of the planet. And a Crenation found one sword, Denarian found the other sword. And they would eventually become the first host. Well, these were the champions, right? Of what Excelsior and Tortoise would be. The and the Denarian champion, right? Yeah. Correct. And, yeah. And, they, right. and so the Denarian champion would would inherit the life force of Excelsior and the Crenation one would inherit the life force of Tornatrax. Now in the second book ever upward, we learned quite a few little twists and turns regarding that mythology. But the basic legend is that they did clash. Excelsior was victorious, but if he killed Tornatrax, then Excelsior would have to leave DNAB four and return to the center of the universe. And he didn't want to do that. He wanted to keep, he wanted to be among his people. And so he basically did, he basically figured out a loophole in the terms. And so what he did was he took the life force of Tornatrax and imprisoned it into this clear orb where it would do no damage to anyone, but it would still be dormant. He would still be living in some way. And that orb was cast through their interplanetary doorway, which is called the leap of faith. And he would be cast in a deep space where he would be able to do no harm. And so Excelsior could live among his people. But by doing that, the Crunations remained who they are and what they are. And they were very aggressive when it came to eventually defeating Excelsior and taking over that planet. And so by not throwing the ring into the fires of Mordor, he set about basically the undoing of his own legacy. And so 
that is where that is what Excelsior learns in the second book, which would eventually be called Ever Upward. And he winds up realizing that he has much more to do. Um, right. But that is the background that you need to know going into the first book, because Nat, basically it, it, he made a mess. His people have been defeated. His essence has been cast where? Where is well, Excelsior's toward, essence? essence? His essence is trapped within its own sword because whenever the, the body is – whenever the, the body itself dies, then the life force returns to the sword. Okay. And the sword is where? The sword is now – like it's basically being held by the Denarians at first. But once, like as the as the origin story con- continues on, eventually another person who is worthy to carry the sword becomes Excelsior. He winds up defeating the emperor of this Crenation Empire, which is not who is another character that survived the those original Steno notebooks, and he would eventually travel to Earth, and that's where the sword is, where we di- where we discover it. That's where our story opens, right? Yes. Yep. That, that's, that's where our that's story, where, that's where story opens. So, yeah. so it's a mess. The Cronations have taken over DNAP 4. The Denarians are basically little more than slaves and prisoners or hermits or people who are just trying to survive. His essence isn't even on his planet. And basically the way it works is that both, both godlings need a champion. Yeah. And the previous and Tornatrax's previous champion, Noctrar, has been defeated. Yes. Right? Right? Mm-hmm. And so they both need a, a new champion. Mm-hmm. Somebody Which is, mm-hmm. on the Cronation side wants to be that. Cha- Matter of fact, several somebodies on the Cronation yes. side want to be that champion. Mm-hmm. And on the Denarian side, the champion is entirely clueless and that's mm-hmm. where George's story starts off. So yeah. when yeah. we started talking about this, we realized that some George knew that somebody had to help, help Matthew discover his connection. Mm-hmm. And he created a character that is one of my personal favorites. And as I get older, I identify with her more and more because the idea of nurturing talent. Could you tell us a little bit about Dr. Catherine Sierra, AKA Clara? Yes, absolutely. She started out as a he. He was very much inspired by Obi-Wan Kenobi and someone who is, who is noted as an elder among the Denarian people, which means that they are one of Six people, six men and women that are tasked to basically watch over the Denarian people. And he was one who traveled to Earth to find any sort of sign of Excelsior and was ready to give up hope when the sword was uncovered. And once the sword was uncovered, that's when all of a sudden things started to really move because it it was about seven years after the sword was uncovered and put on display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, that's when this character learned that there is a webcomic that just became 
really visible that was written by this young man named Matthew Peters, who happens to live in Queens, New York. And and he was telling these stories that only Excelsior would know because they were all Excelsior's memories. Tell the listeners what the significance of Queens might be. Well, Queens was where I was living at the time. I had I had moved there in 2001 with my friends and stayed there throughout 2005. And then in 2005, that's when my wife, well, girlfriend at the time, now wife, where she and I moved in together in 2005. And we would stay there until 2011, when we would eventually make the move over to St. Louis, where we are now. So um, for anyone so who's I not was, for anyone who's not from New York, Queens is an incredibly rich and diverse borough. And I think it's fair to say that it inspired a lot of the richness that we saw in the creation of Excelsior. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Like it it just felt like if I if I wanted to really try to dig deeper and go into try to set set them up someplace else. I felt like I would be doing myself a disservice because I know Queens. I it's, it was right outside my door, and the area where Matthew lives, I lived on that block for almost five years. So why not just use that and and run with it? And it just felt right. And so that area, like just off of Northern Boulevard, that's that's where I lived, and it just. It just felt like that was uh, that was the best place for him. It, to be. it, it made it so or- organic. I totally agree. So okay, so you decided to make Clara female. Yes, and and then the next well, it wasn't a character, but they kind of almost sort of function as a character, which is what we've come to call the Big Four. Could you tell us a little bit about the Big Four? Yes. Originally, it was it just had in mind the big two, and these two characters were ones that were that were created in the first draft of the novel. They did not exist beforehand. But it was when I was in in the car what, with my father driving, and I was in the back seat. And I had the laptop going because I needed to get my six sixteen hundred and sixty seven words in for that day for June first because we were driving back from seeing my grandparents, and. We just started, I, I just started, it just started spilling out and it just felt like this character, this young character, Seminex, who would become the, the next person to inherit the life force of Excelsior. Before well, the second Matthew. champion, right? The second champion. Yeah. The second champion. Exactly. He needed friends. He needed, he needed a couple of people on the inside that would kind of guide him. And that's what we got with these two characters that would eventually become Radifin and Granick. And they had different names then, but it was just like, they were names that I knew were going to be placeholder names. So I just, just jotted them out, jotted them down and just left them at that. However, as I was, and I, I do have to, I do have to pause really quickly because right after I finished my first five pages, it wasn't long after that. That's when we kind of stopped over at a little mall to kind of stretch our legs a little bit. And I walked into a Barnes and Noble and I came across the complete idiot's guide to self-publishing, which, and I just felt like it just felt right to go ahead and just buy that. And it wound up being, it wound up being a, a good omen because eventually I would wind up going the self-publishing route with Excelsior. But 
while I was working on everything, it got to like about the first week of writing this first draft and I was hitting all my deadlines and it felt great. And I felt like everything was moving the way that it should. And act one was, was solid. I felt like it, it was really going somewhere. And then act two, week two of NaNoWriMo is always a pain to everyone because you've used week one to set the stage, to create all these characters and everything. Now you got to give them something to do. And that's when all of a sudden it was just like, oh, I've just been following this character, this character, and this character for the longest time. I need to shake things up. I need to kind of move the action a little bit. I need to move the camera somewhere else. And so I said that there was going to be a couple other Denarian characters that were going to come to Earth, and they were going to help out with Matthew's training. And so I reintroduced the two guys who would be Granik and Radifin. And then I said, like, well, they need help. They need a couple other people to, to help them out as well. And so I created Zoribus and I created Karini. And both of them, their names right on the spot. It just felt like it just kind of spilled out. So I was like, you knew right, who that's they good. were. The, that's, yeah, I, I knew who they were. And as I was working with them, I was just like, Ooh, these guys are all fun. They're fun to work with. Let's see, let's see what they can do. And by having their scene at the leap of faith where they would go to earth, that's what really opened things up. And that's when I felt like the, the momentum really kicked in. Cause then it was just like, well, then they're going to go and meet up with Matthew. And all of a sudden it was just like, all right, they're going to go here. And then the, their training is going to go this way. And initially I had, for some reason I had set up the retrieval of the sword over at the Smithsonian instead of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So I had a couple of guys going to task with going to find the sword and then the other two to meet Matthew and help out with the training. So it was going to, they were going to split up right then and there. And then they were going to eventually meet up in New York. But during the many, many rounds of rewrites that, that you and I were doing, then it became, well, it's got to be the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I know that area. I know that place. And I had been in the arms and armory section. And I just remember walking around there. It was just like, the sword's going to be right there. That's where it's going to be. And and then it became like, well, normally it would be behind a lot of plexiglass. Well, well, the reason why there's no plexiglass is because whenever they try to encase it in plexiglass, it would let out this siren of a sound that would force them to just kind of keep it open and just surrounded by velvet ropes and with a lot of security. And so that's, that's how that became. So that way that would allow the, whoever winds up touching the sword, which would be Matthew. Yeah. People um, don't realize allow them to do it. Yeah. Yeah. People don't realize how much problem solving goes into even a fantasy novel, right? Because you can't say X, you have to make it it, a verisimilitude, right? You have to make it seem believable, even if it's not real or can't physically happen. Yeah. I I mean, like the ultimate example of the ultimate example of verisimilitude is you will believe a man can fly from Superman in 1978. Like that's, that was their tagline. You will believe a man can fly. So, and that was what Dick Donner, the late great Dick Donner was, was really, focused on is that verisimilitude you have to buy into that so yeah and that's something that really stuck with me 
throughout the throughout the development of this whole series. I'll, I'll tell a really quick story here. So when when Cheryl and I got engaged in November of 2005, I proposed on the 70th floor of Rockefeller Center because at the top of the rock observation deck, it was someplace that we knew that we wanted to go to at some point. And so I decided then and there, that's where it's going to happen. That's where I'm going to propose. Couldn't have gone any better. The the weather was perfect. Like we got it just at, at sunset, got a great yeah, picture, you know, like everything. Yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, it was, it was fabulous. And funny thing was that when I lost my job, when I was one of those three quarters at Hadassah that, that got let go in 2009, I started working at Top of the Rock and became a host and then eventually a lead host really quickly, actually. And the big reason why I got that job was because of the story I told about getting engaged up there. And so that became something that I like the manager, Amanda, who who hired me, she would say, like, tell Tom, like the whole story. So I would just go right in and tell him that story. During that whole time that I spent up there, I really came to love being on that top floor on the deck. And when I, I, there are a lot of times when I would go up there and stand on the 70th floor and I would look around and see that amazing view, which really is the best view ever of New York because it's 360 degrees, no windows. And so you get like the, you you get something that's truly, truly wonderful. And so I just remember thinking, damn, a sword fight would be really cool up here. That was what I was thinking. Just like, I would love to have a sword fight on the top floor at Rockefeller Center. And then I was thinking like, well, it's going to happen with the second book. And then it became, how am I going to get the sword up there? That's what, that's what I was thinking about. Not, I have a God in human form and I'm bringing back this other, this other character and everything. So like, right. how am I going to get a sword past security? That was what, I, that's what I was thinking about. How am I going to get right. the sword past security? I could not, for the life of me, think about how he, he's going to raise eyebrows by that security. It's going to go through that metal detector and damn it, those lights are going to go off and the security guard is going to ask, why do you have a sword? And I was like, what am, what am I supposed to say? And I remember telling this to, to one of my friends, Princess, who was there. Big shout out to Princess because she came up with the ultimate, ultimate suggestion that opened up so much in that story. And she said, well, there could be an event up there. And as soon as she said that, that there could be an event up there, that meant that if Excelsior, Matthew, is attending this event, that means he's going around the around the way over to the a bank elevators that would go directly up to the to the top floor and they wouldn't go through security at all right. so so not only did that solve it was just like right but, but it's so not, not only just solved, solved yeah. the problem it was a major plot point right because then it then it became what kind of event would there be and that's when all of a sudden even more that had been just kind of locked away in in my little safe from the early years of creating this character, all of that started coming out. And then it was just like, I, it, it was, it was a blast. All of a sudden it became like something really, really special. And, right. so, so, and writing so, that second one just really was, it, it was, it was a mind blowing experience. So, so 
the thing that I'd like to say to young writers, young creatives is that the part that sometimes stymies us, even though you've got the talents, even though you've got the chops is figuring out how you're going to make it work. Yeah. But, and, and, and that's the stuff behind the scenes that's making the sausage and the law and all of that and working mm-hmm. behind the curtain. But that's, that's where the creativity really flows. That's where a lot of what George puts on his show about opening yourself to creativity, about accessing your creativity is super valuable so that you can, when it comes to those sticking points, you can work it through it. And like George did, he spoke to someone who wasn't a writer or anything who just said casually, Hey, what about X? Right. Mm-hmm. And boom, that's when the creativity fires up. And that happened also when we were working on upgrading the characters for the first book. So mm-hmm. you've heard about the heroes. So there were the elders, there was Elder Clara, who was, and the big four. So they were very important. But then mm-hmm. it came to the villains. Villains, as everybody knows, more fun to play, more fun to write, but you can also kind of get a little, enmeshed in them and they can making a making a a complex villain is truly an art form and george had basically three major carnation top level villains he had tornatrax he had noctorar and he had the one who was vying for to become champion danak yeah. But since both Nocturar and Tornatrax were sort of out of the picture, he needed someone else who was sort of boots on the ground. And he created a character of a Cronation general. Mm-hmm. And he, he, I'd say the original version, I don't know if I would say stiff, but it, the original version was a little one note, maybe not going much of anywhere. And I thought about Clara and I said to George, what would happen if we made this character female? And George went, you could see the light bulb go off over his head. And what happened then, George? Well, the funny thing is that like that character, like you said, Tornatrax would not be, would, would not be a part of this, would not be a part of the story. He would reappear for part two. I knew that, but I just kind of kept him in my back pocket. Nocturar, the one that the one that Tornatrax had chosen to be the emperor, if he should fail on his mission to destroy Excelsior, Nocturar would take over as the emperor of of the empire. And but at the time, he was he was disabled. He was he was completely out of the picture. They thought he was dead. And Danak was completely off the planet. So, yeah, there needed to be someone there to not keep the peace, but keep the fear. <laughs> and so and so I envis- I originally envisioned this character that was like a, a cross between The Undertaker from WWE and General Kale from Willow. So someone who would be just menacing, had have a great presence about them very stoic would have this long trench coat and would be like the ultimate in spreading fear. And I told all of this to Jerry Ann and while we were on the phone and she said, can it be a woman? And just like she said, the light 
the lights like in my eyes just like immediately like illuminated. It was just like, yes, yes, she can be. And then all of a sudden, from then on, General Hadera, as she as she would be known, was always going to be a woman. And she became one of the most, I have to say, delicious characters that I that I had ever that I had ever come up with. And I have to I have to borrow the line delicious from what from how Frank Langella calls Skeletor the most delicious character that he ever played in Masters of the Universe. So same thing, same sort of feeling. It like she was someone that I knew that I could go to the moon with and have a lot of fun with. And once I incorporated her into that next into that second draft, then it became, oh, she is welcome home. This is ex- you where have you been all all of my life as a writer, General Hydera? Because she became so much fun to get to know. And especially in the second one, I knew that like I was going to have a lot of fun with her in the first one, in the first book, but I was really going to let her spread her wings in the second book. And boy, did she ever, she became like, she was a big part in ever upward part two in the Excelsior journey being in my eyes so far, the best thing I've I've ever written. So what, so by making her female, it gave you new places to go, new things to explore and new things that you could play with that weren't previously available. And I, I would love to encourage other writers that sometimes if you're stuck with a character Maybe you need to try them in different, I mean, change them up, move them around, make them older, younger, change the gender, take away the gender, give them horns, something. Try try opening your mind to permutations that you didn't see before that might give them all kinds of richness and and story points that weren't previously available to you. Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely have to agree with that because not only have I been able to yeah it's and this is the these gen this rewriting of these characters in terms of both Elder Clyera and General Hadera it just felt natural it felt natural it felt like they were they needed to be who they now are because once they became who they are that's when they became so much richer. And that's where it was just like the ideas were flowing about who they are, what their backstory is, what their history is. And, and it became something really fun to to do, especially with Hadera. Because yeah, well, and it gave us uh, more points of conflict. And the thing yeah. that you want in the story is conflict, right? You want to have that push-pull with as your protagonist goes towards the object of their desire, the things holding them back are the conflicts with the supporting cast. And boy, oh boy, did you create someone that was like conflict a go go? You, you oh, need yeah. a conflict, but Call so much Dara. fun, but so much fun to get to know. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, Hadera, um, yeah, Hadera the, is just that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. So now we're getting to the point where I don't want to give away any spoilers because I hope people are getting ready to run out and buy Excelsior if they haven't read it. Well, but they can't do it yet. They they can't quite do it yet because it is the process of finding a new home because the 
because the the publisher I was working with in 2017 had to close down. And so which which happens with with a lot of small presses and thankfully everything that I needed in terms of the rights and having the books taken down in all the the retail areas all that's happened. So now like so now it's in the process and my agent Amy Brewer at Metamorphosis Literary Shout is, out to Amy. Big shout out to Amy. She is she is fabulous. She was a guest here on the show in in the past and just so much so just just a, a true like a, a true truly amazing person and so she's doing her part to make sure that these books live on through through an, at a new home more news will be given to that once things work out but as of right now like uh, they can't quite read the books yet but there is something else that they can do in a few months oh and george tell us what that might be well <laughs> like i said this year is we're celebrating 30 years of this character and it was during very early on this year, on the 30th anniversary year, that's when I was made aware that a group that, I've, that I'm a part of on the Clubhouse app called the 529 Creatives Club, they were looking for new material to turn into an audio drama so that they can perform it. And I offered Excelsior. And originally, he was go- it was going to be performed this year. However, it took a lot longer for me to write it. I wound up delivering my draft in July after getting the after getting the green light to do it in February. So, it took a lot longer than I expected because when I did the audiobook for Excelsior, it came out to just over 7 hours of material. And I had to squeeze 7 hours worth of material into just about 1 hour. And so that's something that I highly, highly recommend that any author does is to adapt their, their book into another medium because you will learn so much about what works, what doesn't, what can be changed, what can be not changed, what can be condensed, what can be thrown out, what can be highlighted, everything. And give yourself those limitations because if you just say that you're going to adapt it into a into another medium and you wind up producing a four-hour script well no producer is going to make that and so you have to give yourself those limitations and well, also the limitations what works. creativity too exactly exactly i was thrilled to get that to get that those kinds of limitations i like that's if you look at all the different iterations of excelsior i am married to the story i'm married to the characters how they get to where they are going, I'm open. I'm open to different interpretations. And you'll notice that by reading each of those different books, because there are a lot of different interpretations based on what happened. But the skeleton of the story will always be there. And that's something that I will I will continue to fight for. And you will hear that in the upcoming Excelsior audio drama. As I announced at the beginning of this episode, we have a cast. As of last week, we have a full cast. We're still missing two male roles to do like little bit parts. And I'm in the process of, of working with a potential sound editor. But once we have that, we're good. We have everything all set. Rehearsals start Monday, January 9th. Things are moving. And this cast, I can't say enough good things about this cast. 
Yeah, I heard um, the auditions you're gonna and they mean, were knock your socks yeah. off. Yeah. Everyone there is just amazing. They're as excited about this. Everyone is everyone made a point to say how much they were looking forward to this opportunity. And it it was it was so wonderfully validating after 30 years of working with this character all of a sudden like i have i have great actors that are bringing to life these characters that have been with me for decades and it's yeah it it was so exciting george because yes. it's just been you and i talking about this for well 20 plus years and then to hear yeah. the voices of the actual characters come to life Tell yeah. us what that felt like for you. I got chills at the end of the at the end of the audition process, at the end of the audition day when I got to give my final words, I was choked up. I did mm-hmm. start crying. It felt amazing. It it's still a true true highlight of my life. One of the most creatively fulfilling experiences I've ever had. And I owe already I owe so much to these actors. I owe so much to Deborah and Bob at the 529 Club. I am so excited to hear what what our composers are going to come up with. And I it's it's I I still can't believe it's happening. I still cannot so, believe that it's actually happening. So would you like to announce the names of the lead character who's playing the lead characters? Yes, Jerry Weil is playing Matthew Peters at Excelsior. And when I first heard him, I knew he was definitely in the running for that role. And then I just decided a couple days later that he was going to be it. He was going to be the one I could hear. I could hear that character through, through his voice. And he was some, it was a character that I didn't know how it was going to, how it was going to work out. And I have Erica Harvey as as a re reimagining of Jason Peters. It's actually JC Peters, his aunt now. I have Molly Rock as Elder Clyera, who is just an amazing person, an amazing actress. I can't say enough good things about her. I can't wait for you guys to hear what she has in mind for her. We have Shaq Hussein as Emperor Nocturar and David Lee Hawks as Danak. The two of them auditioned together and the second take that, that we did. Oh yeah. They gave me chills. Was, man, I, and they they work so so well together. It was just like, this is it. And I even asked them, how did you guys do that? How did you guys reach into my head and take mm-hmm. out a scene that had been in my head for a couple of decades and bring it to life the way that they did? I still can't can't fathom how they were able to do that, but damn it, they did it. And huge, huge shout out to Audra Angelique, who is just going to, who is just going to blow everyone away as General Hadera. I, I'm so excited for everyone, everyone who's invi- who is a part of this. And I've gotten like I've gotten other cast members that have been reaching out. Kendra Williams, who's going to be Mrs. Lifemate Nitera, and Chris Woodworth, who is going to be playing Zeribus. Oh, an amazing talent, and just just a and just a great guy as well. And I remember Kendra Williams reaching out to me and just like I just finished the script. I am 
in love with with Nitera. I was like, yes, like I knew you would be. I knew you would you would rock this. And so she is excited for it. Just everyone is is so excited to be a part of this. And, and I just hope that and, and, I just hope a, I don't kill that. I, I just hope that like, that I don't drown them all in like in in praise the way that the way that I've been already. Um, also, I have to say, in a nice little in a nice little full circle moment, I have a son who is the same age George was when I first met George, and George has invited him to give a little tiny bit part cameo. So yep. I, it, it's an, it's a little full circle thing. George first met my son when he was six years old, and now he is. A lot older. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's 27. He he's 27. Yep. And so, and, and George was a big, he was an actor in high school and George was a big supporter of his little fan club and he hasn't acted in years. And so I, I, it, there's something very nice and full circle. And now, of course, George has a daughter who is the same age that my son was when we first met. So lots of interesting little parallels going on here. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I am, I, I, I'm over the moon to hear, hear this. Like you said, the actors just were incredible. Also, the folks behind the scenes, let's give them a shout out because they were oh, yeah. really on the, on the ball a hundred percent. Absolutely. Deborah Wood is at the 529 Club is just an absolutely stellar human being. Bob Daniel as well, who is, who has given me so much support so quickly and was really just kind of like my sounding board as I was working on the, as I was working over and over on this draft and just saying like, I got this much done. I got this much done because I was dealing with a full-time job and everything at that point as well. And just like, just trying to get, trying to get this right. And that's what Bob kept on saying. Just like, don't worry about getting it done fast. Make sure it's done right. And those words really kind of put my mind at ease. I didn't feel like I was, I was gumming up the works by taking so long and it just, it, it felt great. It felt amazing, amazingly validating. It just felt like there is a reason why I've held on to this character for 30 years. And I'm going to, I'm going to find out why. And now it's just like, I know why it's because these people needed to be here at this specific time to bring these characters to life. And so when, when do rehearsals start and when can we look forward to you making the announcement of the air date? You're going to hear the air date. I would say like in early February, it's either going to be at the end of February or beginning of March when it's going to happen, but it's going to happen on the clubhouse app. And, and there will be Q and a afterwards. And there's, there's going to be a lot going on with this and because i have this show i realized that this kind of opened the door for for even more promotion because i've already let the cast and crew know by the way you guys are going to be on this show and i'm going to be talking to you about about your story i want to know about you You like how you got into acting how you got into voice work how you got to where you are the path that led you to going into the audition on that day on December 15th, which to me is just like one of the greatest days of my life. So we're going to, are you going to be recording it? Will it be available? Is it going to be live stream or is it going to be available afterward? Maybe on your podcast or on some other platform? How does that going to work? 
I can say that it will be recorded. So it will be available on the Clubhouse app. So that way people can go ahead and listen back to it and, and listen to the whole and take in the whole experience. Whether it will be available outside of Clubhouse, I don't know yet. But I am I'm thrilled to find out what like how this how this will happen. Oh great. Um so I don't like I said, I don't want to get into spoiler territory for the radio play or for the books, but is there anything mm-hmm. else that you'd like to let your listeners know about the creation of Excelsior and the development through so there, we've already had Excelsior and mm-hmm. we've already had the first sequel. There's going to be the third book in the trilogy. Yeah. Is there anything you would like to have them know or that we didn't touch on? Well, I mean, thinking back, thinking back to where all this started, because originally it was just, it was me telling all these different stories in my steno notebooks and sharing it with classmates. And that was pretty much where right, it like was Matthew, going to go. Right? A boy alone I was thinking room. like, yeah. Yeah. And like, I, but at the same time, I was also thinking big. I was thinking like, well, at some point these are going to be movies. They, 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 they got to get over to the, to the silver screen. I was even coming up with like credit sequences, like for, for, for some of these, just thinking in my head, just thinking like this piece of music would go great with this because I'm, I'm a huge film score lover. So I was, I was creating a temp score as I was coming okay, up with wait, all wait, these different I'm, stories. I'm going to pause you for just a second. I know how much, and you have taught me so much about the artists who create film scores. Who is your dream films, dream person to do the film score for Excelsior? <sighs> That's a tough one. It really is. I mean, like, obviously, you know, there's, the ones there's, who are still alive. Yeah. Obviously the, the grand, the grandmaster John Williams, like if, 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 Maestro Williams ever says that he would like to do it. I'm not going to say no, but I also know that he would be very, very busy, but I, I would love to hear, I would love to hear a theme by Hans Zimmer. I feel because I, I, I'd been in love, I'd been in love with his music for decades before he, before he really like kind of grab the people's attention with the Pirates of the Caribbean music. But I remember him. I remember like, and I still maintain that like one of the greatest themes he ever did was Crimson Tide because that's what hearing that music. And I'm thankful that Hollywood Pictures used his music and not a temp score for the trailer because hearing that music got me in the theater. I knew that like, I need to hear this theme front and center. Something told me it was just like, it's, it's, gotta be in the movie it's gotta be in the movie i've never heard this music before i absolutely adore it it's gotta be in the movie sure enough it was and that i made sure to own that soundtrack really really quickly i would love to hear just like a good like pulse pounding kind of theme for excelsior that he would do so i'd say like if if i had my druthers like if if john williams is busy and (laughs) if and and if Hans zimmer is available or at least like one of his one one of his one of his apostles. I like uh, people like Steve Jablonski. I would he would do he would do an amazing theme. I think Klaus Bedelt, obviously he would do great. Guys like John Powell. Like it's it, I mean the list goes on and on. John John Debney. Hell, like I would love to have a two time guest on Excelsior Journeys, Vince Decola. Like, damn, he would come up with an amazing theme. Like just I it's the the possibilities are all, are endless. 
But we have a really interesting composer who was brought on specifically because of the themes that he had that he had done for previous works with the 529 Club. So I am really excited to hear what he's got in mind. Oh, that's so exciting. So what other exciting things are coming up for both Excelsior Journeys and the character and novel and materials surrounding the character? Well, it it makes sense that we're we're talking about this on this podcast because and this is and this is where I, I give a shout out to David to David Allen Lucas, a former president of the St. Louis Writers Guild, because he's the one that that inspired me to name this show Excelsior Journeys in the first place because I knew that I was going to create a podcast. I knew what I wanted to do with it, and but I didn't know what to call it. And I had one different idea that this one, I don't know about this. I'm not really married to it. And we were at a writer's convention and right behind me was my banner for the first Excelsior book. And he just points to that and just goes, since he sees the subtitle, for Excelsior was part one in the Excelsior journey. So he points to that and just goes, why not call it the Excelsior journey? And I turned around and I was just like, that can work. That can really work, but let's tweak it. Let's name it Excelsior journeys since everyone has their own. And then, and then from there, Excelsior journeys was born and all credit to David for coming up with that. All credit to Molly Phipps, the cover designer for the 2017 Excelsior in 2018 Ever Upward, who came up with a fantastic logo for this, using the same format of the two books to kind of show that they are connected in their own weird way. Very much like Friday the 13th, the movies, and Friday the 13th, the series, how they're basically like connected by name only, but there is like a weird connection between the two of them. So that's where that's where we are with this. So it's been five seasons now for Excelsior Journeys. And in October it'll be five years that the show has been active. Wow. And and so I it's it's coming up on <clears throat> it's coming up on episode 180. And and early on in 2023, that's when the Once Upon a Podcast Network will be launched. And so you're going to hear from some amazing podcasters that are bringing their shows to this network that is all about, like I said, inspiring, motivating, celebrating, and rejuvenating creatives of all types. They're all welcome. All are welcome here. And so it's going to be, it's going to be a, a pretty awesome 2023. I'm really excited for that. I'm excited for the network. I'm excited for the audio drama. I'm excited for Excelsior and Ever Upward to find a new home. I'm excited to finish Greater Glory, which is part three, and we'll wrap up this trilogy. I'm excited to start on the next series, which is which is going to be inspired by those characters that were created before Excelsior. And so kind of bringing that element into it. So it, it's, it's, it's been, it's been wild. It's, it's been just, exciting. Uh, it sounds like an exciting year ahead. It is. Um, I, I don't want to get too excited about it just because like the years have, have, have had their ways of, of being a little turbulent as of late. Oh yeah. But, but I am still, I, I'm still not going to tamper my own excitement for the potential of what's to come. 
Excellent. Listen, George, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to interview you about something that we've both known and loved for a long time. I feel like we could, I mean, we don't want to do any spoilers, but I feel like we could go into so much more depth about creating, creating characters, creating plot, plot point. I mean, there's so much that we explored together in the creation of both the character and the series that might benefit some of your listeners. But I think, wow, this is such a wonderful introduction to the character and all of the excitement to come in the new year. Thank you for letting me be part of it. Oh, absolutely. And thank you for being such a great sounding board too, for like all the, all the different ideas that I had during the development of all this, because we've had a lot of phone calls out of the blue. Oh my God. I just thought of something. Can I run it by you? Yeah. And, and a big thing to, to note in here is that originally when, when I come up with the sword for Excelsior, I had always said that it was modeled after Excalibur. And then when the 2013 second edition was being developed through Rocking Horse Publishing, which would be the first of two small prints that would take this, take on this book. I, that's when I reached out to you and I said, like, what if it really is Excalibur? We don't, we know of Excalibur from the time of King Arthur, but we don't know where it came from and we haven't seen it since. So. And that opened the doors to right. so much more because right. then all and of a sudden exciting, it was just like and, and an exciting little thing that the only tease I'm going to give give your listeners is Lady of the Lake, and I will say nothing else. Yep, yep, nothing else. That oh, yeah, that boy. that uh, oh man, it was it was it just it just create it just made this little project that basically just started as me just lifting almost entire storylines from other movies that I'd grown up with and sticking my characters into there, basically doing a reverse fan fiction and taking, instead of taking established characters and new situations, I took those established situations and just created new characters with it. So I was Tarantinoing before Tarantinoing was cool. So- <laughs> well, I also appreciate we work really well together, although my role has been, not the spoil sport. I, I'm kind of the 10,000 foot view. So when George mm-hmm. comes and he says, Oh my God, I have this idea. I'm the one who says, okay, let's look at the big picture and how this is going to work and what, 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 how this is going to work or not work or how it has to be developed in order to work. So it takes a lot of patience to like have to damp down your, your enthusiasm a little. Like I said, George is great at picking the curtains. George has got a flair for interior design, but until you have the roof on the house, right? You don't have a house yeah. yet. Right. So I'm, I, so I'm kind of the architect. No, I'm not the architect. George is the architect, but I, I'm, I'm, I, the, I'm the city planner. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm saying, wait before before you can build this village, you you've got to figure out how you're going to design it, right? Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, that so that's been our our relationship with with this story for well a long time, and I hope for a long time to come as George starts to branch out and telling even more stories drawn from his characters and ideas. And and they're all going to link up, right? The new series is going to have a link to this trilogy. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. A, a, a big, a big link and a returning character. 
Yep. That's all I'll say, but, uh, but it's, but, but it's going to be this particular character. When we first encounter them in book three, they're quite different from where they were when we last saw them at the end of book two. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> This but is where I will... I'm, rubbing, I'm, I'm rubbing my hands together in anticipation, folks. <laughs> oh yeah, yep. And um, it it has been just a it, it's it's been an absolutely overwhelming thirty years with this character, and the fact that like he's starting to get known now, and he's already reached international best selling status. Thankfully, at the end of 2018, one of the great things that I was able to have happen with my publisher at the time, Aloris Publishing, was we were able to secure a BookBub deal. And it wound up getting enough sales to categorize it as an international bestseller because it hit number one in several categories in both the U.S. market and Canada on Amazon. So... Once I saw that, I was just like, oh, I'm international, international bestselling author then. And that's a, that's, that's a, that is a title that I'm very proud to continue to have and run well, with. Well, and you've worked hard for. Yeah. So it's been, it's, it's been wild, but I feel like it's, and it really is only just beginning, which, it, which I feel like it's, it's one of those, one of those little benefits of having a character reached this 30 year anniversary and so few people out there know about him. Well, um, you know, it just feels like I, he's, he's, he's become, he's been a well-kept secret. I feel for long enough. Well, and also I think that the journeys of Excelsior have reflected your own personal Excelsior journey, right? Because when you started oh, yeah. this, you were a kid. The first yep. book is the young Matthew who is just figuring out who he was. The second yep. book is the much more mature Matthew who's starting to have mature relationships. By then you were a married man. And now yep. as you're going into greater glory, you are a married man and a father. You have become a yep. voice actor, a podcaster, an author. I'm probably leaving out like a, half a dozen more, a half a dozen more titles that I'm not even coming off the top of my head. So your own personal creative Excelsior journey has been reflected by Excelsior's journey and this story arc. And it's wonderful to have had a seat on the ride with you. It's, and I, I can't think of a better person to have riding shotgun on, mm -hmm. on this, on this journey. Thankfully, like we're not Thelma and Louise driving off the cliff. <laughs> oh, no, no. We're the, 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 as, as Sarah Connor had said, the unknown future rolls toward us. I face it for the first time with a sense of hope. And that's what it feels like here with Excelsior. 30 years and had some modest success, but now, like with the audio drama coming, with potentially a new home, a new publisher, I am facing all of this with a sense of hope. Yeah, and, and to think that your daughter will soon be old enough to start reading your first book. Yep. Yeah. 
yeah, she's she's getting there. She's not there yet, but she will. And knowing, seeing, seeing how she is and everything, and how she's how fast she's growing, and she is, she inspires me more and more every day. That's terrific. Well, happy New Year, George, and happy New Year to all your listeners. Yes, yes, happy New Year to all of you. Thank you so much, Jerry Ann, for being a part of this. It was a real pleasure to think back on all of these experiences. And I just have to say as a final word to all of you, thank you so much for tuning in for five seasons of Excelsior Journeys. When I say at the beginning of a lot of these episodes, I never thought we'd get this far. That's really kind of like the way I feel, like always, just like... I can't believe we've we've gone this far with this show and there's so much more to come. There's always people reaching out with ideas and wanting to be on the show, people that I reach out to to invite on the show and they're enthusiastic about being there. Huge shout out to podmatch.com for all of the amazing people that have discovered been able to reach out to me through there and have produced some truly amazing episodes. Just Shout out to, to all of the people that inspired me throughout childhood who have decided to take a shot and be on this simple one-man show that's being done in a walk-in closet in an office that was originally a bedroom. And it's become something so much more, just as this show has to me and just as this character has to me. And so knowing that, that there are so many other people that are really enthusiastic about getting to know this character. I really hope that they're all listening. I almost feel like this is homework for all of the voice actors to basically know all you need to know about these characters, about these people that they're going to be playing, about where they came from, etc. And I'm just thrilled with what's to come. And a huge thing that I just need to say to all of my listeners out there, have patience with your creation. Don't give up. Do not hit the delete button. If you must, just save everything in a different document and start a fresh one. But do not delete your work and do not give up on it. So for Jerry Ann Geller, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, Ever Upward. And I will see you next year. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com. <laughs>